This edition of Euphemet contains disturbing subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. In this particular area, when you, you there's a trailhead that's kind of like off the sidewalk. So you walk up the sidewalk and then you turn right. And that's when you get into the kind of the opening of the trail. And there's like this open meadow that's kind of there where there are picnic tables and things like that. And then you go further into the woods. And I remember just looking at that and it looked so different and just feeling, you know, like all that time that had passed. But I remembered every detail of what it was like because I had been there so many times every day, you know, that summer. But I didn't go into the woods. That I, I think I was just a little bit too weirded out and freaked out by it to go in there. So I never did. I after go after running that same route for a couple of months every day, I never went back again. I'm Jim Perry, and this is Euphemet, a show about the unknown and our relationship to it. This time. A woman jogs alone to the center of knowing, on the edge of danger in the district. Next, on Euphemet. Words have always been important to Tanya, a former newspaper reporter in the Bay Area who now works in corporate communications. She has always been looking for the signal in language, in story, to better understand what the message is and should be. Sometimes the signal comes to us in mysterious ways. It almost pulls us towards it as if some energy awakened without a voice. A knowing ringing through and demanding our attention. It's when the weird whistles through the darkness between its sharp teeth that changes something in us. A pit in our stomach, hair raised, when we realize the signals for us. From the Midwest, so I was going to law school in the Midwest, and I had gotten a, a summer internship in Washington, D.C. for that summer, working for just a really cool nonprofit. And but I had never lived in a big city like that, and I was also an avid runner, and so I was really excited to get there and kind of map out a running route um, that I would kind of you know, that I planned to go on after work. I, that's just something that I, I did for a lot of years, not so much anymore, but back then I was, you know, somebody who liked to run every day just to kind of decompress from my day and that sort of thing. So basically I was running through kind of a pretty busy area, but then eventually toward the, you know, I don't know, the middle of my route, I would kind of get to this little pocket of woods up in the Georgetown area. I was running through people and shops and crowds and restaurants and and all of that, and then kind of eventually getting to an area that was a little bit more remote. There were still people around, but it was a little bit more residential. 
I was just so enamored with the way that you could be in a super busy populated area one minute and then I you know I just wasn't familiar with the East Coast and the way all these little you know pocket parks kind of spring up and you go into them and you feel like you're in this completely different world it's just so many trees really thick woods and I really loved that um, and so I started this this one route every day where I would run through the kind of crowds and then I would end up in the woods and then go back home. And I'm one of these people too, who once I, I kind of create a habit, I stick to it. So I went literally the same route every day for a good couple of months before this happened. So it was toward the end of my internship um, and I was, so it would have been probably around the first week of August. I had one more week left before I was supposed to go back home and then start up my third year of law school. At that point, I had I had been on this route many times, didn't even really have to think about it, just kind of, you know, doing my thing. And it was on a Saturday, this one particular Saturday, I, for some reason, I ended up going a little bit later than usual. And because it was August, the days were still light, you know, it was light pretty late. So it was probably, you know, um, the sun was going down probably between like 7.30, 8 o'clock. And I was out there later and I was maybe five or 10 minutes away from the woods. So I was still in the area where, you know, there were a lot of people kind of mulling around. I wasn't quite to the, the kind of the tranquility of the woods yet. And I started to get this really weird feeling. And I had never had anything like that in my life um, happen before. And I was thinking, so the only way I can think of to describe it, and I think I mentioned this in the email to you, is it's sort of like, you know, when you're watching a really suspenseful movie and it's that, you know, few seconds of silence right before something really bad happens, right before the bomb goes off. And you have that, the audience has that sense of, of suspense and tension. And that's what it felt like. I'm looking around and it just looked like a peaceful, you know, regular day, regular evening. And, you know, I remember, th this is so weird. There's right before you kind of get to where the trailhead is for this particular park, there's like a gas station. If you know where the exorcist stairs are in DC, this is basically where I was. So there's like a gas station then the exorcist stairs. And then you started, you, you kind of go up an incline and then you kind of get to this little wooded area. And so it's not as many people around, but there's still people around. And I remember looking over at this gas station and seeing a, a fuel truck pumping gas into the ground. And I remember thinking, is that truck going to blow up? Like, that's how crazy this feeling was. I just, it was like, I knew something bad, like something bad was going to happen, but it was, it was like just the strangest thing because I was looking around and everything seemed fine. So I, I don't know why, but for some reason I decided to keep going. 
um, I think I was, you know, I was a law student at the time. So everything was very analytical. Everything was all about sort of what was around me, the material world. I wasn't, you know, everything had an explanation. There was something, there was a a logical reason I kept telling myself that this was happening. And so I remember kind of saying to myself, like, you're just, maybe you're just a little bit freaked out because it's starting to get dark. One thing I did do though, is I took my earphones off. I was listening to music. (laughs) I had like a, one of those big yellow waterproof Sony Walkman. So that's what I was listening to. And I decided, okay, at least I'm going to take my earphones off so I can sort of hear what's going on around me. But I kept going. And the, and this is, this is taking place over the course of minutes. This wasn't just seconds. This was a long time. And I just kept going and it got worse. So finally I sort of realized that, okay, this isn't me just being silly. There's something wrong here. And so I stopped put my hands up as if somebody was there. And I said out loud to nobody, okay, okay, I'm turning around. I'm turning around. The second I turned around, that feeling went away. And so by the time I got home, I had completely forgotten about it and just went about my my regular day, evening at that point. And then the next day, which was a Sunday, I went to go do the same route. Um, so this would have been a little bit earlier in the day, probably around five o'clock. And I get up to the, the, the trailhead and there's yellow caution tape up marking off the area. And there was a police officer standing there. So I walk up to him and I'm totally freaked out at this point because of course I remembered, you know, I had sort of forgotten about the whole thing, but then as soon as that happened, I was like, oh my God, you know, so I walk up to this cop and I said, you know, can you tell me what's going on? And he's, I'll never forget it. He said, we've got a dead girl. I felt like throwing up. I remember holding my stomach and like kind of walking home in a daze. And this was sort of, you know, for the most part pre-internet. So I got home and I was living in one of the dorms as a lot of summer interns do in DC. And I had a roommate. I walked in the door and she was like, you look like you've seen a ghost. And so I, I tell her the whole thing. And I think it was about the time for the evening news to come on. So we were watching the news and they they basically had the story on and at that point they had not identified her but basically the gist is it was um you know this this woman who was in her, so at the time I should mention I was in my early 20s so I was about 23 24 this woman was in her 20s she was a summer intern from California she had been walking through the woods um I think she had been at like a, a barbecue or something with friends and had been, uh, you know, took took the little route through the woods as like a shortcut to get back to where she was staying. And somebody attacked her, sexually assaulted her and uh, killed her. They were saying on the news that basically this had happened within an hour or so of when I would have been there had I kept going.
it was very overwhelming. I remember being really freaked out, totally freaked out that this had happened. And my, my roommate, bless her. She was so sweet. She, I, I don't even think I went anywhere without her for that next week. She was always with me. She, I, I slept with the lights on. I mean, I was really freaked out after this happened. And I remember lay, lying in bed that night, just sort of staring at the ceiling and thinking about it and wondering, you know, like, did, did this really happen? And there was like this knowing that if I had kept going, something bad would have happened. And I know that sounds really dramatic because here we've got somebody who was killed. You know, this is the, always the part of the story that feels, anytime I'm, I'm talking about it, I feel like I'm, I'm making this about me and it shouldn't be about me. I mean, this is, this is a horrible thing that happened. This woman was getting her PhD. She was gonna be this amazing scientist. She had already made all these contributions, you know, to just the world. She, she had an amazing life. She was married. Why did I get this warning and she didn't? Why did I stop and she didn't? You know, there was that part too. And of course, I told everyone that, you know, I told my parents, I told all my friends what had happened. And my and everybody had their ideas about what this was. My mom, being a devout Catholic, was like, well, it was your guardian angel or it was, your, you know, a relative who was looking out for you. And my dad, also a lawyer, um, was like, well, it was you know, we, we human beings are animals and we have animal instincts and you were probably picking up on something the same way an animal would. But I wasn't even close to the woods yet when this happened. I was still on the, you know, kind of on the road with cars whizzing by me. And so there's, there's no way that I could have picked up on hearing something or sensing something in that way, because I was a good five or 10 minutes, you know, away at that point. None of it felt satisfactory to me. I remember even going to see like psychics and stuff after this and asking or mediums and, and asking, what do you think this was? And I always would get like the, well, it was your spirit guides or something like that. And it just never felt satisfactory. So I kind of started down this road of be, just being really interested in all these things and reading every book I could get my hands on. You know, over the years, I've definitely, you know, formed different opinions about maybe what this was. And the only thing that the thing that these days is kind of making the most sense to me is that, you know, I was listening to music. I was running. That's very rhythmic. Like maybe I had gotten myself into some sort of altered state of consciousness almost like like a trance state almost where, you know, maybe my, I was in like a different, like a theta brainwave state or something like that. And I was able to tap in to, you know, if there is sort of this current around us or this, like, I don't know, a field of, of something, consciousness, everything that's ever happened. Maybe it's, maybe all that information is out there and we can tap into it, you know, in certain circumstances. And that, that's kind of where I am with it now. I still think about it all the time and it's never really happened since. So, you know, I'm not somebody, I wouldn't consider myself somebody who's psychic or sensitive in that way, but, but that happened. And so maybe it was a combination of, it was a really extreme situation. And so there's that. And then, um, and you know, just whatever the, the kind of where my brain was, or what, if I was in some sort of trance state, it, it's like kind of the perfect storm maybe that allowed for just a few minutes for this to happen. 
I was definitely a person who, you know, I was in school, so I was focused on my future and my career and where, you know, what I was going to be doing, all of those material things that you're thinking about when you're that age. I was not, you know, somebody I wouldn't, I mean, I've always been interested in the paranormal, I would say, even as a kid. I remember everybody has the story where you go to the library and especially when you're my age, you check out all of the time life books on, you know, spontaneous combustion and the Bermuda Triangle and all of that stuff. I was really interested in that stuff as a kid. But, you know, where I was at that time in my life, I was definitely thinking more about you know, just all of the things that I could see and touch and, you know, the things that were right in front of me. I, it was it was more of a concrete sort of worldview. And so it, this completely, it turned everything on its head for me. This case went unsolved for a really long time. And I, you know, I, tr- I, I kept up with it. I would you know, I don't know, maybe a couple times a year, I would Google just to see where they were, if they were getting closer to solving it. Last November, they finally made an arrest in the case. Hey, Adam, yeah, please say this was a case built in some good leads that after 30 years, close to 30 years, finally led to a eureka-type moment. Investigators say the rapes and one attempted rape date back to May 1991 and happened within an eight-mile radius in Maryland. They say the Potomac River rapist has strong ties to the area. By matching DNA from the crimes with other DNA databases, the Montgomery County Cold Case Unit, led by Officer Steven Smugoreski, was able to determine who the killer may be. But last week, an announcement. Police say they arrested 60-year-old Giles Daniel Warwick after DNA information one of his family members uploaded to a public genealogy website matched his. He was cleared for extradition yesterday. U.S. Marshals transported him and released him to D.C. police last evening. He was interviewed by detectives, and authorities are now seeing if he is linked to other similar crimes in South Carolina. So I think that's another reason that it's been sort of just coming up for me a lot lately. Just following that and seeing he hasn't been tried yet. It's been a while. I'm not sure why. Um, but yeah, they made that arrest and it was so crazy seeing this, the, um, the, 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 you know, his mugshot and seeing, having a name to put to it because it's just been such a big thing for me all these years. Because it, nothing happened to me, the story for me is less about it's less about the physicality, the thing that happened on this planet to this person, and more about what ha- the thing that actually did happen to me, which was getting this, I don't know, I mean, if you want to call it precognition, that has been a much bigger, impactful thing for me. And so it was, it was really interesting to, you know, to see that they had made an arrest. I think I thought I would actually feel something more when I saw him, but I don't have any connection to him. You know, the other thing people always ask me too is if I feel a connection to the the victim. And you know, we were we were at similar places in our lives. We were in the same physical place at the time. Oh, I just I get goosebumps when I think about that. I, I think I'm probably more connected to her. I feel more connected to her than I do to him.
when they first were talking about this on the news, before they had released her name, they were describing her. And they said she's five foot six, 110 pounds, short black hair. That was, if you saw a picture of me back then, that was my exact, that's exactly what my physical description would have been. So there, that was, that was another thing that was really freaky. When they released her name and, you know, they interviewed her husband and talked a lot about what she was like as a person, she was, you know, just the fact that she was just starting out in her life. She was a little bit older. I think she was maybe in her late 20s. Um, She was a PhD candidate. I think she was getting her degree in biochemistry. Um, Very talented, amazing. She was going to do so much. And the fact that she's gone and I'm still here. And what if I don't live up to my purpose? And, you know, so there's that survivor's guilt kind of thing that happens where I look at my life sometimes and I'm like, well, did I do all the things that I should have done? There's because I do feel in a way, I don't know for sure, but I feel in a way that I was sort of given a second chance. And so you do have that feeling of wanting to make the most of it and do all the things that you came here to do and all of that, living a good life, a full life. Sometimes I choke up when I talk about this because I, it it's just so awful. It's like so, so awful. And I didn't know her, but I cannot imagine how devastating this was to her family. So she apparently called her family at the same time every weekend. And the fact that her husband hadn't heard from her, he was already, before he knew anything, he was on a plane to DC from San Francisco and had landed. And by the time he landed at the airport, they were, you know, the authorities were there to greet him and, and they had the news. So it's just, it's devastating, you know, just to think about what happened to her. But then... And all the things that she was going to do and all the people who loved her and all of that. Being in D.C., being a summer intern, you've got your whole life ahead of you. So there was definitely this, um, I did feel a connection to her in that way and that we were both still in school. And we, you know, I I was bright eyed and excited about what my future was going to bring. And I'm sure she was as well. So I feel like that was probably, you know, there there was a similarity there, you know, between us. We were both there doing the same kind of things that summer. It's interesting because I moved, so I first, I moved to California from the Midwest right after I finished law school and I first moved to Orange County and then a couple years later moved up to the Bay Area and I don't even know that I thought about it. I never really thought too much about the fact that she was living here, which is kind of a strange thing. You'd think that I, that I would, there would be more of a parallel there. Um, but I, I will say though, I was, so right now I'm living in San Jose And for a time I was working in San Francisco and I would take BART every day from where I was living in the East Bay on the train on my way to work in the morning and looking up whether there had been any movement in her case and then finding that the FBI had basically renewed their efforts to find this guy. This would have been in like 2011, 2012 and finding that website and reading through all of the, everything they were saying, because there were some new details that I didn't know. Um, So reading that and then being on the way to San Francisco, I do remember feeling that that felt kind of poignant to me, this renewed effort to, to find her killer.
after living in the Bay Area for about 10 years, I moved to DC again for just two years. And I did go back to the spot. I didn't go all the way into the woods, but I did kind of get close to it. And it was so weird seeing it 10 years later. So this happened in 1998. I moved back to DC in like 2009. So it would have been about 11 years later. I think I was curious about whether I would feel, about what I would feel. Um, and I was with friends. I remember uh, it was a couple of friends that had come out to visit me from the Bay. One was from the Bay Area and then one was from my home. I'm from Kansas. So one of them was from Kansas. And I remember, and they, of course, knew the story because I had, I've, I've told this over the years. And, and I think they were a little weirded out, too. So it was one of those things, too, where we were walking and I was kind of narrating, like, this is the place where it kind of happened. And, and you know, looking at the little gas station that's kind of like right next to that area and seeing that that had changed. So just that passage of time, it was, it was interesting to see that. Um, it felt a little weird, but then at the same time, you've got cars whizzing by, people living their lives. It's actually a really nice area. I think a lot of the Georgetown professors kind of live around there, around that park. And you see, you would see like kids with backpacks, like walking through there. It was like a shortcut on the way, you know, to school and stuff like that. So it was, you know, it was not like a desolate area. It was out in the middle of the city. It just feels weird to like be there and see it and then know that this really horrible thing happened there, but all these people are just bustling around and living their lives and they probably don't even realize that that had happened there. And that's the thing. I went back to see it and I was, I'm still just as confused as I, as I ever was about what it was. And that's, it just kind of drives home this whole, like, I'm never going to have the answers, but I'll always be seeking and searching. You know, that's just kind of the type of person I am. I'm, I'm always, you know, going to be looking into it, I'm sure. But yeah, I think, I think I thought seeing it again, that I would have some sort of epiphany and I didn't. It was just... It was just, it was just, you know, still just as muddy and um, as confusing as ever. It, it's even though this is such a horrible story and and what happened. I mean, it's it's just, it's the worst. It's the worst thing that could happen. And but but there is still something about it for me that gives me this. There's a comforting aspect to, to knowing that, like for me, I know that when I die, I'm not going to be gone. I think when I was younger, about that age, I probably would have said that I was agnostic and that I just kind of thought, yep, when you, when you die, you go in the ground and that's it, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. But I don't, I don't believe that anymore. And part of it is maybe I'm older, I'm closer to death than I was back then. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you tend to change your views when it becomes a little bit more of a reality. But just this idea that there is this current of something around us and we can tap into it. And it can tell us things about us and how we're living our lives. And the fact that I got that warning, oh gosh, I mean, it still gives me goosebumps head to toe when I think about it. Um, that I got that warning and that, you know, whether it was something as just, just me tapping in and, and maybe picking up on a little bit of information or whether it was a presence or something warning me. I 
I try to be a lot more aware. And I don't just mean aware from like a, you know, don't go running after night <laughs> after or after dark. It's it's more of a just like stopping and listening and paying attention to what's going on around you and that you can get those those intuitive hits if you really do pay attention. And um, we, we are so far away from that these days, just the way we live our lives where we're, our faces are on our, our telephone screens all the time. And it's a lot harder, I think, to, to connect. Um, but, you know, I, I do like to go out in nature a lot more and just sort of like sit and meditate. I, I have a pretty hefty meditation practice, I would say. I meditate daily. So, um, so that's one good thing for me that's come out of it. Knowing that there's more out there than what we can see. Um, and I really love that, just that that's, that that's there and that sometimes we can get a glimpse into it and a little bit of a peek. I look at people who live their lives just totally in the material. It just feels very one-dimensional to me. I don't think I could live that way. I, I just, there's, it, there's no excitement in that for me. And that is definitely something that I think, I don't know, maybe I would have ended up coming to that conclusion anyway, somehow, but um, I, I do like to think that it's all linked back to this thing that happened to me in DC. As of this release, the man accused of being the Potomac River rapist has pled not guilty in D.C. Superior Court. His trial is set for some time in 2022. Thank you for listening to this edition of Euphemet. Thank you to Tanya for being our guest. Tanya is a Euphemet listener who emailed me their story. And you can have your story featured too. Reach out at jim at euphemet.com. Thank you as always to our sponsors. For everything Euphemet, including how you can subscribe to the show, links to our Patreon and social media, visit euphemet.com. And for even more, check out Night Drift, our weekly radio broadcast discussing Euphemet and hosting panels on topics at the intersection of society and strange. That's live Sundays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. This episode was produced and scored by John McEdward. This has been Euphemet. I'm Jim Perry, and until next time, keep looking up.